This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I am back, back from vacation. In case some of you tuned in yesterday, some of you are tuning in today. Back from vacation, the show was not canceled. I wasn't offed by somebody. I wasn't found in a ditch. None of that stuff. Uh, just a little vacation time. So glad to be back. But here's the thing: while I was away, and I was over in Africa with my wife. In the middle of the night, because it was seven hours ahead, on, I guess it would have been June the 8th, my time, but June 7th. Anyway, me being the idiot I am, woke up in the middle of the night to find out what was happening in the Ontario election. Because even though I'm thousands of miles away, somehow I needed to know who was going to win the election. I think a lot of people probably felt the same way, maybe not at the same distance. Anyway. So we're maybe a few days behind on this, but not really, because what has, it's not about the election per se. It's about what's happened since that I want to talk about for a few minutes off the top today. Since Doug Ford was elected, and it's not just the Doug Ford election, it is, we've seen this many, many other places. There seems to be a new tradition, a new thing that people are doing that people have decided that if the person wins that they don't support, you begin to get this hashtag, this thing on social media, it's on Facebook, it's on Twitter, it's on lots of places, not my premier, not my premier. He didn't win. It's not the guy that I wanted. It's not the candidate that I wanted. So I refuse to consider that this person is the leader of the province, the country, whatever. We've seen it with not my president. We've seen it with Donald Trump. We've seen it with George W. Bush. We've seen it with Barack Obama. People saying, no, this person... I'm sorry, they are not, I I refuse, and not only do I refuse to go along emotionally with the person, which I may disagree with, but essentially I am going to show absolute disrespect for the person in the office because I don't think that I don't support this person and therefore I refuse to acknowledge or to at least accept that this person is the leader of the country, the province, the state, whatever else. And you want to know something? This is a really, I'm not sure this is where we want to go because this is a really dangerous thing we're doing now to democracy. Now, this does not mean that you have to like the person who was elected. There's lots of people who don't like Doug Ford. There are lots of people who don't like Donald Trump. There's lots of people who didn't like George W. Bush. There's lots of people who didn't like Barack Obama. There's lots of people that wouldn't have liked Hillary Clinton. There's lots of people, whatever it was. But we live in a country and in the States as well, since we're talking about those ones, we live in a part of the world where we are lucky to have a democratic process. When I was just talking about being away, where I was over in Uganda, they have a quote, quote, elected president, quote, quote, he's been president now for 30 years. You talk to people over there and they say, "Uh, you know, yeah, he's elected. And I said, well, do you believe that the elections are fair? No, of course not. Of course not. I mean, don't forget, this is the country that once had Idi Amin running things. People would, who who disagreed with with the president would disappear never to be seen again. This is, they're not in that situation now. That's not the same thing, but we are lucky. We are blessed in this part of the world that we actually have free elections. And then you have an election 
and decide that, you know what, the person who won wasn't who I wanted to see win, and therefore I refuse to acknowledge the legitimacy of that person. And, you know, since I got back and since I've been following this and seeing this online, I got to tell you, this, this disdain for democracy, which is all that it is, is troubling to me. It is really troubling to me. Because here's the thing. Here's the beauty of democracy. You don't win every time. You don't, your person does not win every time. The only time, the only political system in which your person wins every time is a dictatorship and you're in the party of the person who is in power perpetually and permanently. Democracy doesn't guarantee you that your person is going to win. You are going to have times where the person you support is in power. You're going to have times when they aren't. It's the pendulum of democracy. It happens in free elections. It happens everywhere. I, I don't have in front of me what the longest stretch is of a liberal or of a conservative rule in Canada, but it doesn't go on indefinitely. Never does. Same in the States. It's not a Republican or Democrat. They don't, they're not perpetually in power. It swings back and forth. And for people to decide that because the person who didn't get power or who got power isn't someone they support, and maybe it's someone they don't like, and so they are going to decide this person is not, I refuse to accept, I refuse to acknowledge that this person, I refuse to accept that this person is the leader of the province, and I will not show respect to that person or to the office. This is troubling to me, and it's not because of who the person is in office. It's because of the concept that what we're doing then is saying that democracy is only democracy when I win. Democracy isn't democracy if you win. That's wrong. You're an idiot for voting the way you did. The people who voted for that person are morons and they shouldn't be trusted. And you want to know something? If we get down that road too far of saying that just because the person I didn't elect gets in and I refuse to recognize them, that is a troubling, troubling place. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Somebody wins an election, and the people who don't like that person, who didn't vote for that person, have suddenly, and this is, I think it's a recent phenomenon, have suddenly decided to start using the the hashtags on social media, talking about, not my premier. That's what's happening now with Doug Ford. Not my prime minister. Not my president. And we're talking about this because, i got to be honest with you, I am very frustrated by this, and not because of the Doug Ford thing. I would be saying the exact same thing if Andrea Horvath had won and people were hashtagging not my premier. I would be saying the exact same thing if Kathleen won, Kathleen Wynne won, and were hashtagging not my premier. The whole idea, the whole premise of democracy is you fight for who you want to win. You go to the polls, you ask the people, those who choose to come out and exercise their rights to vote do so. And at the end of it, you shake hands and you say, you know what? I may disagree with the person who won. I may vigorously disagree with the person who won, but this is the system that we have. And it's a whole lot better than any other system we have in the, in the world, any other system you're going to find in the world. And you know what? If I really, really disagree with the person who won or with the party that won, I will do something to make sure to go to, to do whatever I can to make sure they lose the next time and my person gets in. But in the meantime, because this is how democracy works, I will respect the process and understand that more people voted for that person than for my person. And therefore that's how it works. That's not how it's working though now. And what we're getting 
instead is this petulant reaction. And that's what it is. It's a petulant reaction to losing. And I started thinking about this today is why is this happening? Because I don't remember this happening in the past. Now, maybe it's because social media didn't exist way back when. But this seems to me to be something that sort of started really around George W. Bush's time. We've seen it with Justin Trudeau. We've seen it with Barack Obama. As I say, we've seen it certainly with Donald Trump. We're now seeing it with Doug Ford. And I'm thinking, okay, what is going on? What's happened recently? What's happened more recently that might have led to this besides just the advent of social media? And I'll tell you what it is, what I believe it is. We have had now, and it's our fault, by the way, it's the adult's fault, it's the older, it's the Gen X people who have raised their kids, telling them that you are not allowed to lose. We don't keep score in sports because we don't want you to lose. You get a ribbon or a trophy for everything you play. We've talked about this before. You are not permitted to learn how to deal with losing. We ref- we have refused to let our children learn how to lose. That it's okay to lose sometimes. That there is grace in losing if you want to do it the right way. And when we have taught an entire generation, our fault, by the way, not the, not the people's fault who are now the young voters, our fault. When we have an entire generation now that has been told all along that it is, that you don't ever have to lose. That you are not, we're not going to let you experience losing. We are not going to allow you to understand how to deal with losing. What exactly do we expect is going to happen when they lose for the first time and they are told for the first time or one of the first times, yeah, you know what? You, you, You don't get to win this one. The person you like doesn't get to win this time. I'm absolutely convinced that this is a huge part of it, that we have a generation, again, our fault, not their fault, not their fault, our fault. We have raised an entire generation to not know how to accept a loss. And politics, if you're going to have a democracy, is one of those places where you are going to lose sometimes. But we've told them, you know what, if you, we saw this with Donald Trump. Now, again, very divisive figure. No question about that. But the way the system worked, the way the political system works, he won fair and square. But we won't accept that. I am not, ex- I'm not accepting that I lost. I'm not accepting that my person, I don't like Donald Trump. I like my person. So Donald Trump, I don't like him. I lost. I refuse to accept that he is now the leader. Well, here's the problem with that. What happens next time when your person wins? And all the people who are on the other side now turn around and say, not my premier, not my president, not my prime minister. You know what you're going to say to them? Stop being a whiner. Stop being a baby. We won fair and square, which is absolutely true. But you can't have it both ways. You can't expect other people to line up behind your leader when they win and represent and respect them and follow them and accept them if you won't do the same when someone else gets in. Here's the other thing. In Ontario, in this election, and I was very surprised by this because, well, actually, no, it's not true. I wasn't surprised. I wasn't sure. We talked about this on the show several weeks back. And in fact, I had argued that I thought that the number of people who were going to vote was going to be up because despite the fact that everyone says they don't like negative politics, 
people love negative politics. They say they don't, they do. And so more people voted in this election more than in any election in the province since 1999. 58%, still a low number, but 58% of Ontario voters actually came out and exercised their right. It was up from 51% last time. So you can't even argue that Doug Ford came in because of a dearth of people voting. Look, you don't have to like Doug Ford. That's not what this discussion is about. I don't care who you support. But the reality is, in a democracy, if you want this thing to work properly, whoever wins, you have to accept that they won. And if you don't like it, fight for the change the next time. But the not my premier stuff, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing and it's not right. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Dr. Jean Chamberlain, founder of Save the Mother. She's a Hamilton doctor who has worked in Uganda. Just got back from there, saw some of the work that they're doing and saw some of the places they're working in. The work that's being done is amazing. The facilities they have to work in is sobering. And I keep coming back to that word. And, and Jean, I, I, I just have to wonder when you go there, you've been, you've worked in Hamilton, you've worked in other places in Southern Ontario, you've worked in Canada, you know, the facilities when you go there, how is it not devastating to you every time you walk into one of these places and see what the conditions are that even in a good clinic or many of the good clinics, what you're dealing with, that has got to be so tough. Yeah. I mean, it, it certainly is very sobering. And I think if you ever stop being sober about it, then you should probably get out of the uh, out of the work. But I think um, I also see hope. I also see things changing. And I see um, local people taking um, initiatives to, to use what they have. Like, again, they're not going to have a CT scan in the middle of uh, Uganda somewhere, but they are they could have medication that costs, you know, less than a dollar. Uh, they could learn how to give injections. They could learn how to do certain things. Uh, that will help to save a mother. We we can put money into training um, um, excellent midwives and physicians who can help and do their infections as needed. And we know that regardless of location, at least 5% of all mothers are going to need a cesarean infection. That doesn't mean if you're in Canada, wherever you are, at least 5%. So um, those women uh, have tried just as hard as everybody else to have a natural delivery, but they need the cesarean infection. Otherwise, uh, they or their baby are going to die. So these aren't um, fancy surgeries. These are things that can easily be taught. And um, I see, again, um, local people really um, becoming more and more engaged with this. And people who are outside of the health profession as well, too. I think that's so important that the norms change. Just the way we've changed the environment here uh, in Canada, we, you know, we recycle, we uh, pay attention. When you and I were kids, Scott, we used to just throw the six bags of garbage at the end of the driveway on the, for, you know, twice a week when the garbage men would come. So, so I think time does bring change, but we have to be intentional about it. And I think that's the advantage that I've seen as I've been involved for the last 20 years. And I've seen the changes where people are becoming aware that, you know what, our mothers can be saved. Here's some of the things that we can be doing. But, you know, they really need our support. And I mm. really encourage Canadians to get behind this important organization, SaveTheMothers.org. Go on and have a look at our website, see the things that we're doing. And, uh, you know, again, really putting your um, effort and your energy behind local leadership. Um, yes, I'm a Canadian doctor. Yes, I'm skilled at what I do, but I don't need to be the one standing there doing the work. I need to be helping to help bring change to the system. And that's really been the, you know, the privilege of my career is uh, giving uh, help to that kind of change. Dr. Jean Chamberlain of Save the Mothers, thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so here's the thing. And I, 
I, I said off the top of the show, and if you were listening at the top of the show, I haven't done this before. I don't know what exactly we're going to do here. But one of the other things that I didn't mention is in this clinic that we went to, it was a, it was a maternity, maternal clinic. There were three birthing beds. There was this rudimentary neonatal ICU for what it was. And there was a maternity ward with 16 beds. Now I put on Twitter just before I came on the show tonight, you can go see the picture. I put on Twitter a photo that I took because in this maternity ward are these 16 beds and again, nothing to do with save the mothers. They're doing amazing things. So are the other groups over there doing it. But the facilities are so old and so run down and the mattresses on these beds, they were the old hospital style mattresses that were mattresses with plastic around them, rubberized plastic. So you could wipe them and clean them. Those are long worn off. So you've got these old rundown, basically cloth mattresses now that it, you can imagine a woman has just given birth. There's biologically still things happening in her body. These mattresses are filthy despite the best efforts. And so I asked the woman who is now over in Africa running Save the Mothers, Dr. Jean is now back here. I asked, how much would it cost to fix these mattresses so at least they can be clean? At least after a woman is done, they can be wiped off and be cleaned and you're not worried about infections and the women can have some sort of dignity as they're lying in this room. There's 16 of them. It was $500 for the whole place, Canadian. The whole, every one of the beds could be fixed for a total of 500 bucks. That's it. And I thought, well, that is absolutely not a lot of money to be doing something that would be impactful. And again, I'll go, you can go on Twitter. You can see the picture I put up there. Just look for me, Rad, at Radley at the spec. You can find it. If you haven't seen the picture, you want to see it, send me an email. I will send you an email back to show you what we're talking about. And it got me thinking, you know what? I don't know what the interest is going to be here on the air, but I got to believe there are some people who would be interested in giving 10 bucks or 20 bucks or something. I'm not doing a telethon, but if you are someone, and I would love to send you the picture so you could see this. If you're someone who might be interested in helping out a little bit, I thought we can surely raise $500 to pay for all these beds to fix this problem. So to get rid of infections and everything else. If you saw these, this picture, and I want to send it to you. And again, we're not talking about a charlatan on air, on the TV preacher sending you holy water. That's not what this is about. If you think you might be interested, I, send me a note. It's radley at, or, uh, radley at 900chml.com. It's simple. Radley at 900chml.com. You don't, you don't have to send me anything right now, but I'd love to send you the information. We can figure out how to do this after. If you think that maybe you would like to help with this, to do something impactful, to help, because it is, again, it's really hard. Dr. Gene was just saying, it's hard to explain. It's hard for me almost to explain. So I took, as I say, I took some pictures. I'm sure there are people out there who would like to do something to help, whether it's 10 bucks, 20 bucks, whatever else. We're going to keep working on this because I really think that $500 is not a lot of money to have to, to fix a problem this significant. And it's just a little thing. It's not building a whole new clinic. It's just doing something there that can be impactful. Send me a note. Radley at 900chml.com. I will send you a picture. We'll be in contact. I'll get back to you. We'll figure out how we can get, if you want to donate, how we can get the money to the right place and make a difference. But you know what? I'd love to hear from you. Again, Radley at 900chml. Send me a note. We'll talk. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900chml.
Have you ever thought about what's the grossest thing? Have you ever, have you ever eaten anything that's been really kind of, even if it's not, even if it didn't taste bad, just in your mind, I can't believe I ate that. Will is in tonight. You just threw up your hand as fast as you could. What's the grossest thing you've ever eaten? Chicken feet. Chicken feet. And they get bonus points for being gross, but not even gross enough. They were kind of a non-entity. It's a disgusting thought, and then you eat them, and they really are nothing. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of gross things. If you people watch Survivor, they've you know seen a lot of people eat gross things. Fear Factor. I mean, those are really gross things. While I was away, the last day I ate a fried grasshopper, which, you know what? Shockingly, not bad. I mean, these are these are a snack food there. People walk around and they sell a little thing of, and I, you know, it takes you a second to wrap your head around the concept, but then you pop it in your mouth and you go, it's not bad. If I didn't know this was a grasshopper, I'd say, hey, give me another one. I'm not sure I'm lining up to buy a basket full of grasshoppers to eat, but you never know where the future goes. We may be eating insects to deal with our protein. Anyway, the reason I bring this up is because there is a distillery in New Hampshire that makes bourbon. But Will, this distillery has, I think, taken the idea of creating a craft bourbon to a new... I think rather repulsive level that somehow this is supposed to be a sales feature, get people to buy the bourbon. I'm not sure that what they are selling is something I want to be buying. If I'm going to sip on bourbon, I don't even know what's, what's bourbon. Is it, it's corn mash. I think it's corn mash, right? Isn't that what Jack Daniels and those things are made of? I think it's corn anyway, because whiskey is potatoes and so I think I, I want to have what I know is going to be in there. But this New Hampshire distillery, Tamworth Distilling and Mercantile, has introduced Eau de Musk. Now, it's an 88-proof bourbon, so it's going to burn off anything that actually is in there. There's nothing going to be harmful. You're basically drinking almost pure rubbing alcohol here. But it has an unusual flavoring ingredient that is now part of their new offering from this place beaver secretion <laughs> they uh they have infused it with scent oils from the castor sacks of beavers of new hampshire i'm not sure how they have extracted scent oils from a beaver <laughs> Uh, yes, I guess you grab a beaver and squeeze somewhere. I'm not sure where even the sack is. Uh, they describe it. It's ar- aromatic, very distinct. It's leathery, rich, slightly fruity in a non-traditional sense. Yeah, I guess in a non-traditional sense. When you're milking a beaver to come up with scent from their caster sack, I'm thinking it's non-traditional and I'm not sure fruity is the word that I'm, <laughs> I'm choosing. I would have thought that if it's a beaver, probably you would have said it kind of smells like lumber. Isn't that what beavers eat? Do they eat the wood or just spit it out? I don't know. But anyway. They chew it up. I'm sure it gets in there. Uh, The scent oils known as castorium are found in a surprising number of products, said beaver trapper Anton Casca, who supplied the substance to the distillery. So first of all, let's go back to Anton Casca here. His job apparently is to extract this particular scent oil from beavers. What kind of job does this guy have that I trap beavers, presumably don't kill them, 
squeeze the juice out of a beaver. <laughs> Sell it to people. Yeah. yeah. Are you like wringing out the beaver? I'm not really sure how this thing works. Uh, he says, I'm sure you've had castorium. You just didn't know it. When you eat something good and you see natural flavors, a lot of time you can thank a trapper. Now I'm concerned. How often am I eating something or drinking something that says natural and artificial flavors and I'm eating beaver juice that I did not know was in there? I think I shouldn't be allowed to know. Should I not? I think I should be entitled to know if the natural flavors that I'm ingesting are coming from livestock, especially from our national animal. If you have had to squeeze juice out of a beaver to make my soda pop have certain flavor, I should know that. I think I should know that. Anyway, this now, this stuff is being flavored so you can buy this bourbon that has beaver secretions in it. You know, even when they tell us that this is in all kinds of other products, I'm still not able to wrap my head around the concept that I'm drinking beaver juice. It doesn't, it just doesn't seem right. It doesn't see, yeah, jump in, Will. Scott, I got to ask, if you have a glass of corn rat, will you have a glass of corn rat if I drink a glass of corn rat? Not on air, but would you be willing to what do is this? corn rat? Well, this is what I'm calling it because oh. beavers are a rodent. It comes right, from corn, I see. corn yes. rat. That sounds like a good alcohol name. I, you know, I look, I, it, there are things I, I will eat almost anything. I'm not a picky eater. I will try almost anything. I've eaten a grub worm before. It's a long story. I'm not going to go into why I didn't just do it for fun. I'll, I'll try almost anything, but beaver secretions, it just sounds like fluids that are coming from parts of beavers that I don't want to be near. And I don't want to voluntarily be consuming this stuff. And I want to know what my beaver secretions are in now. This just does not seem like it should be the way we're going here. But anyway, there you go. Uh, Tamworth Distilling and Mercantile. Go out and knock yourself out. It's 88 proof, so you probably won't even know. You'll be unconscious after the first two sips. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Our good buddy, Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Sir, how are you tonight? Uh, Right now, I'm somewhere in between shocked and flabbergasted. Uh Uh-oh. Flabbershocked. (laughs) Flabbershocked. Flabbershocked. Why would that be? I mean, that's one thing to look at these U.S. Open scores from Shinnecock to see, you know, an amateur, great story. Elmira is on Ontario, the NHL referee, Garrett Rank at 13 over par. Okay, like shooting an 83. That's really no surprise on a crazy course like this. But then I look at Adam Hadwin, PGA Tour winner, guy shot 59. He's at 13 over par for this tournament. Tiger Woods. Uh, eight over par on 18. Uh, Rory McIlroy, done after the day, 10 over par. Like, this is insane. And Mackenzie Hughes, if I remember what he were, he was at Hamilton Golfer, Mackenzie Hughes, who's playing there. He's at six over par, which, you know, on a, most days you would say, oh, man, I stunk. Yeah. He's he's feeling I'm sure pretty good about himself all things considered when you look at the rest of the 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 scores he he did very nicely for himself yeah he's six over uh, tied for 69th right now which is uh, right in the middle of the pack certainly within cut range but yeah he, here's the thing and, and anyone who wasn't watching this the U.S. Open 
is they always love to set up these courses so that the golfers basically have an aneurysm when they're playing. They, they want to <laughs> see these guys suffer. And the folks who run U.S. golf seem to love the idea of making the best players in the world look like poop heads. I mean, really, I can't think of another word for it. They love doing this. But do you like watching that kind of golf? You know, I, I kind of do and I kind of don't. And I, I hate to split down the middle on this. I think what's, what's really hurting the golfers today is that for the most part, you've been dealing with, you know, uh, 50 to 60 kilometer winds. And this is sort of a, uh, a British Open style um, course, this Trinacock Hills. So it's wide open, and once these winds start going, it's playing tricks on these guys. I mean, right now they're almost through, and I think there's about 160 golfers that started today, and four guys are under par. Scott, four guys are under par, and that's at minus one. One person's at even, and everyone else is over par. So I like to see the guys grind a little bit and work because – just far too many times when these guys are, you know, golfing at the Wells Fargo, you know, they get, you know, they're bombing it, and they're like, they, by the, at the end, the winners get like minus 25, 25 under par. So to see the guys look kind of normal and have to grind, it's interesting. But then there is a point where it just is, is, is too incredibly tough. Like, ask Scott Gregory how things went today. <laughs> Scott Gregory, who is currently in dead last, who shot a 22 over par 92, which you know, that's not supposed to happen to a professional golfer. He, he's won tournaments, Scott, that guy. You know, like, it, it, it's, it's unbelievable that it's, you know, and really, you know, the greens are tough. I mean, but they're not crazy tough, but some of the pin locations and, and this is the easy win. day. This is the easy day. Your Friday's generally the, the date the, the the day to score. Thursday and Friday are the days where they put the pins in the easy spots. Wait till Saturday and Sunday when you know, like somebody already described it today with the way the greens are set up. That when you're chipping on there, you're trying to land a green on a beach ball or land a ball on a beach ball. Well, and there were so many, so many golfers today. That you know we're in chipping situations, and uh, what you're seeing is there's a lot of you know, and I guess the golfers would know what I'm talking about here. A lot of the, a lot of the holes have elevated greens, so if you miss, you're rolling off and rolling down. So that means you have to either choose to putt up a hill or chip up a hill, and there's really no right answer. I <laughs> I see. Here's the thing. I I don't. Uh... I don't mind golfers being challenged, but if I'm watching the, if I spend my time to watch the best golfers in the world, I don't really want to see them hacking and slashing because if I want that, I can go to my local course and watch a bunch of guys who have had seven <laughs> beers do that. And I get to say, like, I, to me, there's no excitement in that. There's no, we don't watch sports. We turn sports off if it's a low level of sports. If you had a hockey game and nobody could complete a pass, you would turn it off because you'd say, this is boring. I don't, this, why am I watching this? You see, this is why I'm, I'm somewhat okay with this time because to me, this course doesn't set up like some of the other courses that we've seen in the U.S. Open where they grow the rough like to an incredible amount. Like, I mean, you get, you're off the fairway and you're in trouble. 
Right? Well, they like did you, that you, when it's been at Hamilton for the Canadian Open. They've done yeah. that at the Hamilton Golf and Country Club. And, the and the grass tough. is eight you, feet tall. You can't shoot out of there. You just have to basically chip back onto the fairway and you know and live for another day. But you, I mean, here this is why I, I'm, I'm kind of okay with what I'm seeing here. You have a guy like say Phil Mickelson, uh, who you know, if I remember correctly. I I think he was 14 for 14 up to the last point I looked at in terms of hitting the fairway, right? So he's hitting fairways, and as long as we've watched golf, Phil Mickelson is arguably the best short iron, short you know short yardage player maybe in the history of the game, and he finished at plus seven. So it's you've got to manage your game, and the ultimate is not to go to score birdies. You have to shoot for par and hope for the odd birdie here and there, which I don't mind. It's a challenge for these guys. I, I suggest that if we really want to challenge them, let's next time when they play Shinnecock also tell them they have to hit the other way. So if you're a righty, you've got to hit left. And you have to have taken uh, some sort of sleeping pill before you set off so that you are dozy when you're doing it. And take a shot of something after every hole. Maybe this, the, the the bourbon with the beaver secretions we were talking about in the last hour. Well, if, you, if, you, if, if they do that, then the winner by Sunday will finish at plus 15. Yeah, well, you know, we like a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> he won't even be able to walk up the final fairway. He'll be hammered and he'll be dozy at the same time. But anyway, that's... Uh, all right, let's move from golf for a second because not tomorrow, but Saturday night, the Hamilton Tiger Cats begin their new season. Uh, before we get to the f- season, how many minutes into this season until Johnny Manziel is the quarterback for the Hamilton Ticats? No, no, you got to stop that right now. <laughs> I say that it will not be thirty minutes in, and he'll be playing significant time. You, you're crazy. You, seriously? Yep. No, yep. no. I, 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 I hear either Jeremiah Masoli. Something's going to happen to Jeremiah Masoli. The, 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 the football gods demand this. And I don't want, I'm not rooting for an injury on the man. That's not it at all. Right. It's just he'll tweak something or he'll just start really slowly and they'll figure, you know, Calgary starts to pull away because they're a very good team. And they'll say, well, we can't let that happen. And I, no. I'm telling you, by the so second half, no, I'll, I'll, let's say 35 minutes. That can't happen, Scott. This is why this guy, the, Johnny Manziel knows about a quarter of the playbook right now. And what he's absorbed under three weeks of in a whole new league and three years of inactivity is exceptional. And I think he did a nice job in the preseason and showed that he can actually play the game and he's got some skills. But he's a long, long way from playing. And you know what? I think Jeremiah Masoli, especially the way he played when he was given the starting opportunity last year, showed that he can play this game. And I think the Tiger Cats did, they worked so hard. They worked so long and hard on bringing in Johnny Manziel. That, I mean, few people have ever worked so hard to bring in a guy off the negotiation list that they will not put him in a situation for failure. They're playing the best team in the Canadian Football League, and the guy knows a quarter of the playbook. They are not going to put him in a situation where he just gets mauled and looks awful. I always remember the situation, and I know that he's, there's, he's drawn comparisons to Doug Flutie, which to me is ridiculous because what Flutie did in his CFL career was you know, arguably the best of all time. But well, and he also took almost two years to figure it out. Absolutely. He took one for sure. He was not the starter. In his, in, when they brought him in, the BC Lions brought him in, they got Joe Pow Pow out of retirement as a guy to mentor him. 
uh, Flutie, I believe, started the last game of the regular season. He threw 10 touchdown passes in the year and was intercepted 19 times. People forget that. Now, the next year he went and won an MVP. So he needs to, and I'm talking about Manziel here, he needs to see what's going on here. There's defenses he has to learn. And to put him in a game, anything short of, uh, I, me personally, not till next year, or at least the season is sort of lost and gone maybe in three-quarters through the season, uh, I think it's just, it, uh, it's a, that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. I'll, I'll, I'll extend my time to the second half. He'll be in getting significant playing time in the second half of this game. Wow. I can't believe you, you, I, you see that. You, that's the way you see this. I, for one of two reasons, as I say, either because something happens to Mazzoli or because the game is out of hand and because they want to get him in, whatever. I just, I, I find it so hard to believe that they are going to let this guy stand on the sidelines for any length of time. It's just, I, I just don't think it's going to happen. Ready. He, oh, he's not ready. Oh, listen, I'm not arguing that he's ready. No, I'm not saying he's ready, but I'm saying I think it's going to be really hard for all the reasons you just said about how hard they went and got him to let him sit there. Anyway. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I'll tell you one thing. I mean, just listening, I mean, and I don't need, I don't mean to, you know, be here and knock the network that, you know, carries the games, but uh, I'm telling you, like, you know, you've got guys predicting when he's going to, like, I almost feel like it's a little bit, bit of a disrespect to Jeremiah Masoli sure it is. And, and his abilities. And, you know, there's a reason why he's a starter. There has to be a reason why when June Jones came in here and looked at the product after a couple of games and said, this is my starter. And when he made that decision, he never faltered. He never gave in. He never, you know, turned around and said, okay, you know what, Let's. it's time to get Caleros in there. Uh, and at the end of the day, he made his choice. So I, I, I would think Jeremiah Mussolini is going to do. I think he's going to be. I think he's going to surprise people, Scott. I really do. I well, the one thing Jeremiah Mussolini has shown us consistently over the time he's been at Hamilton is that he's inconsistent. When he's on, he is really, really, really good. When he's off, he is not very good at all. And if he can soften those edges a little bit, if he can maybe not be as great. Well, I think people would accept that if he can be consistently really, really good. That's a great problem to have. I, I go back to when I was a kid and you had the Conrad Holloway, Joe Barnes situation. I don't yeah. think anyone's going to complain about that in Hamilton, if that could work. You know, but remember, he, he he's had 10 games as a starter, you know, as being the man. Yep. You know, so, and he went 6-4 and four last year. And, argu- and arguably... If you if you want to factor in the defense choking against the Argos at home, the defense choking against Calgary, giving up that long bomb, which ends up being a winning field goal, Jeremiah Masoli could have been eight and two as a starter on a team that would started out zero and eight. Here's the thing, though: what has the defense? What have they done with the defense? that leads you to believe that this defense for the Hamilton Ticats is going to be much better, is going to be anything close to championship caliber? Because last year it was bad, and I don't see a whole lot of improvements there. I think the offense could be potentially very, very good. Right. I don't know that I see too much there that says to me this defense could take this team to a great cup. Well, and I'll say this. I have a lot of belief in the front line. I like the talent that they have up there. I think they. I think this is a unit that, you know, will remind people of the old Tiger Cat teams that just put so much pressure on the quarterback. I think they have the talent and the guys up front and even some local talent, which I think are going to really, really excel. 
Um, the linebackers are still good, and, and Dean, and of course Simone, is always a you know has every reason to be an impact. People you know kind of fear that guy. I think the secondary is what you're concerned about, and I would I and I would be concerned about which is it. the same for what a decade now. Yeah, uh, it's it's been it's been a while now. It's been a but there are some. I will say this compared to past years where it's like just a bunch of guys. It seems like. I will say they got some really solid athletes back there. Now, can they work as a, co- a cohesive four, five, six-man unit? Well, we'll find that out. And and to me, that's a big question mark right now because last year that was a major issue with that the team could be passed upon. Well, there's one other thing with this team that is, to me, it's a massive question mark. And that is we've seen in the Canadian Football League more than a few times. We saw it as recently as, was it last year or the year before in Montreal? American coaches with no CFL experience yeah. coming up here, and everyone goes, oh, they've coached in the NFL. Oh, they've coached in NCAA. This is going to be easy for them, and they are lost. It was two years ago in Montreal, right, that he lasted two games? Yeah. The Hamilton Ticats. Now, June Jones was here for last year, but your defensive coordinator, Jerry Glanville, no CFL experience. Your special teams coordinator you just brought in, no CFL experience. They are going heavy on the, we don't need to have CFL experience to work this. And maybe they are smart enough football guys to actually do that. Yeah. But that has rarely worked, Bubba. That has rarely worked that you can go all hardcore on the American football and have that seamless transition. The, 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 the one thing I think that the Tiger Cats have done here to sort of safeguard themselves, because you're right, there's a lot of guys here, American coaches, that, as you said, I mean, Glanville is a legend. But, yeah, you're right. Has he ever, you know, other than the preseason games, what has he done? He's been a guest coach. What has he done in the Canadian Football League? What they've done, I think, which is a smart thing here, and I don't know who's responsible for it, but regardless, they have guys, in terms of Canadian coaches, alongside these players to help guide them. You know, as you said, the special teams guy, I mean, I believe a three-time um, defensive special teams coach of the year in the National Football Yeah, big League. resume. You know, big resume. But they've also got Craig Butler there, who was, I mean, kind of the guy who was coaching before they brought the guy in. So they're working in tandem. So I think there can be a little bit of, hey, no, we don't do that in the Canadian game. Oh, no, no. Someone to just guide these guys. And I believe that Orlando Steinhauer, that was another reason of bringing him back from Fresno State, because he can help. He can still help June Jones. He can help the offense. Uh, I think he can help the defense. He's obviously a very good defensive mind as well, too. And maybe he'll have some say with, with Coach Glanville to try and help guide these guys in terms of making the correct calls and, and adapting correctly to the game. Now, in the past, you're right, we've seen these American coaches come in there, but they've had no help. They're just going straight off what they know in terms of football. But there is some nuances in this Canadian game, and so I think the Ticats have done a good job in having some guys to help support these guys. Uh, the last, I think it's five or six, no, six of the last ten years, they have opened the season 0-2. Mm. They start in Calgary where, remember what the score was last time they played in Calgary? 60-1. to 60-1. to one. Uh, I don't think it'll be that again, but anyway. <laughs> uh, and then they play in Edmonton, Edmonton being probably the overwhelming Grey Cup favorite to start the season. Those are two really bad places to start your season when you're still trying to figure some stuff out. Do the Tie Cats come home 0 and 2 after those first two weeks, or do they squeeze one out out well, west? I think I think it's I think isn't it three straight on the road? 
Okay. Do they come home? Well, do they go zero and two in their first two? Because yeah, because then it's in Winnipeg. Winnipeg. I mean, and, and Winnipeg is we don't know, but the first two games are the deadly ones. Well, I mean, you're you're right. I mean, I mean, as we as we think of it right now, I mean, this is why you know I think what we see tonight between Edmonton and Winnipeg will be real interesting to see what uh, what these teams are like. But you're right. I mean, there's every reason to believe that the Ticats could be zero and four, even with even with good efforts. Um, but somewhere along the line, if June Jones is, you know, as good as we believe he is, or as good as, you know, he sort of was last year, uh, he's got to find a way for the magic to continue and he's got to take the product and advance it one step higher than what it did. It was last year. Yeah. Because one of the things that he did last year that caught a lot of teams off guard was what he did with Brandon Banks, which Brandon Banks got suddenly used in a way different way. He's not going to be able to surprise teams with that move this time. They're going to be ready for that. They had an off season to get ready for that. You know, and it looks like for the first two games of the regular season, uh, uh, Alex Green, who I thought was just an outstanding, I mean, he came in there as a running back and did a great job, big body, uh, catching out of the backfield, running through the tackles, can go around the end as well, too. Uh, surprising speed for a guy that big. Uh, I thought he had a huge impact on the team last year, and you don't have him for two weeks. He's got a banged-up hand. So you're relying on a couple of Canadian running backs and a guy, a converted defensive tackle to be your running backs right now. It is it is going to be uh, an interesting year this year because we we have to be reaching the point I would think and, and that people have expectations that something is going to happen. I, I mean, we have to be at that point, don't we? That, that we're not at the wait till next year. We're building for next year. There's got to be a point when people are saying, okay, um, this will be the uh, 20th anniversary of our last Grey Cup, uh, it's time to do something. I really think that the there is going to be a lot more pressure on this team, especially when you have guys like Glanville and Jones who are big personalities and big talkers. Sure. There is going to be expectations. They're going to make this thing work. Sure. you got lots of expectations, of course, in the way they ended the last year. And, and you mean, as we started, when we first talked, started talking about the Tiger Cats, I mean... The having Johnny Manziel is is going to add a lot of pressure, and it and, and it shouldn't be just put on him. But you're right; there's some pressure on the organization, and there'll be pressure for him to for him to play. And you're right uh, when they have their first home game, and if they come home uh, and are are and are winless, uh, and and Jeremiah, who sometimes does start slow, uh, if he throws two interceptions like he did in the preseason game, and I know that was a preseason game. But if the same scenario comes out, Johnny Manziel. Oh my God! Can you imagine? You know Tim Hortons Field. There, I mean, there, there's going to be all kinds of noise. But they have to, you know, they've got to believe in their starter. I, I, I really do believe that. Two words. Two words. Timmy Chang. Oh boy. Timmy Chang. Remember when Timmy Chang was the greatest thing ever, and they finally brought him in to stop the howling bay, the bays of the crowd and uh, Timmy Chang and listen I was one of the ones I'm not going to lie I was one of the ones who was pushing for Timmy Chang to come in cuz I'd watched him in practice and that guy did not throw one single incomplete pass in about 9 weeks No he looked good And as soon as they brought him in he looked like you or me back there he looked terrified. Balls were flying out of his hand and wobbling. It's like, what the heck happened to Timmy Chang? I mean, and he's a product of June Jones. Remember that? Right? He was, he's a Hawaii he was, guy. You know, a Hawaii guy, you know, and remember, and remember, I mean, the Tiger Cats were in the doom and gloom when they went all out and got Jason Moss 
after the Edmonton Eskimos, you know, did had a, a great playoff run and ended up winning a, a a great cup with you know Ricky Ray and Jason Moss as the quarterback, and Moss got lots of playing time in the playoffs. And the Tiger Cats went out and got him, and he was awful. And then what did they do? Remember the Kansas City Chiefs released Casey Printers, yes, and they paid a half. I think it was a three-year, $1.5 million contract to get Casey Printers, who was a former MOP with the BC Lions before he went to the NFL. And he was, it, it, he was awful. You know what the good news is? No matter what happens with the Hamilton Ticats this year, we probably will not have to deal with an Art Bryles situation. <laughs> <laughs> So that there's was, that. That was five years of mistakes all in one. Yeah, it was. Anyway, they start on Saturday. Rick Zamperin, of course, will be on 900 CHML after the game with the fifth quarter. The best, the only post-game show that you will want to listen to. Yeah, they, you know, if I can say this, you know, and you know, I know there's another network out there, and you know, they do, you know, their job, and you know, they do a good job of it. But that fifth quarter, you know, when there's a Tiger Cat game, and I'm, you know, at the game, or if I can't make the game. I don't miss it. I really don't. I feel. I really feel like that is the voice of the Titans. Absolutely, fan. it is. And you and know, the, and this other network of which you speak, I am unaware of their work. <laughs> I, I uh, fifth quarter is the only one that exists and the only one that matters. <laughs> yeah, they really, really. I mean, and and I mean, you'd have to ask Rick. I mean, oh, well, I know you're you're right there with them. But how many years has that show been on the air? Uh, well, it was Ted Michaels before that, and I don't even know how long it went before that. Bob Bertine, I'm sure, did it for a while, and who knows? But it's I, I think the I think it's 172 years at this point. <laughs> before radio, they had carrier pigeons who would yeah. call, who would fly in the questions and then fly the answers back. So yeah, that's they, they they had one for the Hamilton Wildcats back in the day. Yeah, that's true. Smoke signals were used for a while there, and then there was the a town crier was brought in to uh, to answer the questions for a time. So. Anyway, that is uh, Saturday night after the game. Bubba O'Neill, in the meantime, I appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this again tonight. Uh, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.